0: What do you get after a month of Kevin Kelly and Gotta Know the Lingo, Old New Borrowed and Blue, and what you've learned from me? Well, you get a mailbag with 7.7 points that include a couple of hills, and I'm not talking about the ones you climb. A couple of hills that each in their own way are so very special, and we'll speak to that a bit later. 7 points. Another cast of stars, Jeff Fisher, Tom King, Jason Moser, And the debt ceiling. And one other in-studio guest. It's your May 2023 mailbag, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing.
1: It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner.
0: Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Happy final day of May. You know, there are two ways of counting the seasons. I grew up anyway with just the astronomical viewpoint, and that means you celebrate something like summer solstice somewhere around June 22nd each year, and there are the equinoxes as well, and they're all around the 21st or 22nd of the month four times a year. That's the astronomical calendar. But then later I learned about the meteorological calendar, and that one's the one that feels a little bit more apt for me, and that just kind of starts the seasons on the first of each of those four months. So. By the meteorological calendar, summer starts tomorrow, June 1st. And that feels about right to me. If you want, you can just wait for the astronomical calendar and count supper three weeks from now, somewhere around the 21st or 22nd of the month. Anyway, I'm going to say happy summer. And it was a very happy month for this podcast. There were five Wednesdays, so that means there were four preceding podcasts to think about from a mailbag standpoint this week. We look back. The first one was May 3rd, excellent advice for living with Kevin Kelly, a delight to be joined by such a visionary and such a good person, and such a great capital F Fool, somebody that I really admire. Kevin Kelly, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know you did. The second week of May was Got to Know the Lingo, Volume 4, where, among other things, we talked about the debt ceiling, and we're going to open that one back up, reacting to a couple of mailbag items this month from that one. Then the third week, What You've Learned From Me. It's your annual birthday present to me. Thank you very much for the notes. And finally, fourth, Old, New, Borrowed, and Blue, Volume 7. That was last week. So that was then. This is now. That's the month that has been. It's time for our monthly mailbag. Now, before I get started, I want to mention what we're probably doing in June, and that is it's probably going to be Artificial Intelligence Month for this podcast. I don't know that every week we'll be focused on AI, the AIs, as Kevin Kelly would have me say, but I know at least one or two of our podcasts next month will be focused there, and I think it's time to talk more and more about that. Now, I realize you can talk too much about it. I feel like I haven't probably talked enough about it, and I, I like to talk about it not from the standpoint of being supportive of or against the AIs, but rather to be understanding of them and to be thoughtful and reflective about where we're headed in this world and what the opportunities are with the dawn of artificial intelligence. So, I'm going to have some good thinkers and commentators coming up in June for you as we embark upon what might be artificial intelligence month for Rule Breaker Investing. All right. well, let's take a look at Twitter. And I think the general sentiment that I read on Twitter in and around at RBI Podcast, that is, of course, this podcast's Twitter handle, was just general feeling that Kevin Kelly's episode, while it went more than an hour and a half, which is nearly a record for this podcast, as one commentator said on Twitter, this episode could have gone longer and I wouldn't have minded it at all. So thank you again to Kevin for taking time. His Excellent Advice for Living book is out in bookstores. Uh, It's a fun one, and that was a fun podcast. I just randomized page numbers and asked him about various thoughts and reflections that he had in that book in a where our whimsy takes us kind of a way, and it was a pre-summer delight. So again, thank you to Kevin, and thank you for many good thoughts on Twitter about that podcast. At Go for Growth Co. that's Jean-Philippe Picard. Jean-Philippe, you're reacting to the What You Have Learned from David Gardner episode, and there was a lesson written in by Walter, and you write, I loved Walter's lesson, quote, I learned that I could pick companies, and it's not that hard, end quote. Jean-Philippe, you went on to reflect about that note that I shared on that week's podcast that investing had become his favorite hobby. In 1999, our fellow fool Walter had moved $16,000 from mutual funds into specific companies. He added with every paycheck over time. He's now a soon to be multi millionaire. I think that was the opening salvo on that particular podcast. That was basically point number one. And I think at the end of it, I said, It really could have been a mic drop and ended the podcast right there, because that's why we do what we do at The Motley Fool. So, anyway, Jean-Philippe, I really appreciate you on Twitter calling out Walter's lesson. I learned that I could pick companies, and it's not that hard. I think, in a lot of ways, that summarizes what we try to do at The Motley Fool, which is to democratize our subject, to make everybody recognize that you, dear listener, are an investor. You may not have thought of yourself that way before, but every time you invest a dollar or an hour, you're making an investment, sometimes for immediate return, immediate gratification, but other times for long-term return, for compounding returns. The choices that we make in our lives with our money and our time really are, when you think about it this way, investments. We are all investors. And I think one of the things our company tries to do is switch as much of the world onto that as possible, and get you realizing, yeah, you're an investor, and with Walter, you could learn that you can pick companies. And it's not that hard. We have had a spectacular return for one of my longest-standing picks in Motley Fool Stock Advisor just over the last few days, and that would be NVIDIA, a stock where, for Stock Advisor members in 2005, we got you a cost basis below $2 a share. I went back and read my original write-up in 2005 recommending Nvidia, which I've done a number of times since, we've just held that position all the way through, with the cost basis below $2. And back then, I was reacting to things I was reading on AOL, to show you how long ago this was, and I was thinking about the future of video games, which was very much where Nvidia was positioned 20 years ago. But you just keep holding these kinds of great rule breakers, and you can be very pleasantly surprised by how they evolve and morph over time. And I think the key for Walter's lesson is that he said he learned that he could pick companies. And the more that you and I think about companies, we're not so much investing in stocks, I mean, we are, but some people take that to mean that they have to start doing a lot of math, or they have to start gambling, or as soon as they buy, they need to have a target price to sell. When you start saying stocks to a lot of people, it turns them off. When you start saying stocks to a lot of people, it might either turn them off or have them start doing silly things. When you start saying companies to people, then they start looking around and going, "Well, what are companies that are important in this world that I think will grow from here? NVIDIA is a good example, but companies like Starbucks or Tesla are other good examples. Long-term holdings that we've had in place for many, many years. I hope you have, too. And companies will continue to own many years going forward from here. Companies, companies, not so much stocks. Well, thank you again to the Twitter sphere. A reminder at RBI Podcast is this podcast's Twitter address. And yes, we continue to use Twitter. I do too, even though I haven't paid up for my blue check mark. I'm still, as I've always been, for 10 years plus on Twitter at David G. Fool. All right. Well, seven points for this. The 79th mailbag continuous monthly since 2015 in Rule Breaker Investing History. Thank you ahead of time to each of our correspondents. Let's go to mailbag item number one. This is from Susie Meeks. A short note. Susie, I'm going to read it in full. Thank you very much for this. Dear David, you've helped me so much to become interested in investing and daring enough to do it. I've loved listening to Rule Breakers' podcasts. They are educating, enriching, and amusing. I've learned so much from you. I love your belief that you should let winners run high. That makes so much sense to me. I don't know why everyone doesn't think this way. You've inspired me with your optimism and humor. Both you and Tom are so wonderful, have improved my life in many ways. I wish you lots of happiness on your birthday and lots of fun celebrating. Foolishly, Susie Meeks." Now. The reason I'm sharing that is, first of all, it's just a very nice sentiment, and Susie, thank you. But two more things come to mind. The first is that sometimes you get a note, and it's just really nice. Often on Mailbag, I'll read a really nice sentiment, but then the person has a but, and either something went wrong or they want to poke back at something, and I'm totally prepared for either of those things. But occasionally, I'll just get a note, and maybe it's because it's my birthday month, where there is no dot, 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 but... There's just a straight-up, really nice sentiment. So, Susie, I really appreciate you sharing that. And the second reason I wanted to call it out is because in your first line, this kind of connects with what we just talked about with Walter's story, but you said in your first line, you've helped me so much to become interested in investing and daring enough to do it. And listeners should know that Susie actually included a, an exclamation point mark at the end of that sentence. So, this is a strong statement from her. And it just reminds me that, for a lot of us, it does feel daring to save money in the first place and not spend it. Nope, to save it, but then not to save it just for a rainy day, but specifically to invest it. And then, beyond just investing it, let's say, in an index fund or mutual funds or, according to whatever financial advisor tells you, to take whether all or in part, at least some of it, and invest it yourself directly and buy a stock. That's right. Buy shares of a for-profit entity that you are becoming a part-owner of the day you buy shares, thanks to the small miracle of the stock market and this ownership culture that many of you who are listening to me right now have grown up in and should never take for granted that we live in an ownership culture where you and I can be part owners of the products and services that we greatly esteem, that enrich our lives, and that we have real belief in going forward. The stock market doesn't need to be much more complicated than that, but because for so many of us, it's not necessarily how we were raised. We may not have had parents who did that. We may not have had schools that really taught us much about the stock market. Maybe we had one of those plug-in courses where your social sciences teacher, for one week, had you tracked the stock market. Or maybe there was a fake $100,000 school-wide competition or region-wide competition, who could make the most money in a month or a quarter. And the person who won those stock market contests usually was betting it all on a penny stock. And everybody else who might have been a little bit more, capital F, foolish didn't actually invest that way and didn't win, but that's actually the way to win the game of investing, is to diversify and buy great companies and hold them not for a month or a quarter, but over time. A lot of us did not have that experience. And so, it is daring. And I I underline that for you, Susie, and I give you a virtual high-five that you took the dare, and it puts me in mind of that great Teddy Roosevelt line about not, not the critic being the one that counts, but the one in the arena. And he includes the word daring in that quote. In fact, it ends this way. It celebrates those who know the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spend themselves in a worthy cause, who at the best, Roosevelt said, knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if they fail, at least they fail while daring greatly so that their place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat, said Teddy Roosevelt on April 23, 1910. That famous line was from a speech he gave at the Sorbonne in Paris. Anyway, a little bit of a historic reminder. But yes, yeah, Susie, you became interested in investing, and you dared enough to do it. All right, rule breaker, mailbag item number two, this one from Mike McMahon. Thank you, Mike. David, in your Something Old, Something New, Something Borrowed, and Something Blue episode, you highlighted the value of building a second brain via digital note-taking. I would point to a second-order effect of using digital note tools, Mike writes, by reducing the friction of moving an interesting article or quote or highlight from your physical present mind space and storing it instead in a digital place, you can significantly reduce cognitive drag." Mike goes on, "...our physical brain does not multitask efficiently, so moving the interesting find to a digital place enables you to free your brain from worrying about having to remember it. Cognitive drag," Mike concludes, "...occurs when you're constantly context Switching So digital note-taking allows you to remain focused on your current work. And I'm glad that you recognize that, Mike, and I completely agree. And building a second brain, which is where that quote came from and where that something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue came from, Tiago Forte's wonderful book. And, you know, I want to go on to mention one more thing about that book that you reminded me of, Mike, and that is at one point Forte talks about how we're going to benefit if we simplify some down to a, a shorter, more distilled task list or list of projects. I'm somebody who has always had a ton of projects, and ever since I first read Getting Things Done by David Allen, the wonderful book, I think I read it in 2003 or 4, I started to amass dozens of projects, and I was thinking, you know, what is my next action for this one, or that one? And my weekly reviews, where I try to go through my list of projects, started to break down some, because there was just too much. I think I was, I was over-multitasking, and I wasn't making enough use, not just of a digital place to keep my notes, but I wasn't making enough use of Essentialism, another great book by Greg McKeown. I wasn't distilling down to really the important things. There were trivial many, but what were the precious few? And I think our work in this world, dear listener, whatever you're purposing, either for-profit or not-for-profit, either as part of your occupation or your hobbies, we're all generally going to benefit by being a little bit more focused. And in fact, at one point in Building a Second Brain, author Forte quotes Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist, who seemed to be a genius and knows so much about a variety of topics, but when you boiled it down, what Feynman did is he distilled his interests down to 12 fundamental questions. And those questions wouldn't change much necessarily from one year to the next, although they were never written in stone. But what Feynman was doing is that he was always listening, whether it was through his reading, through conversation, keynote speeches, experiences around the world. He was always looking at the world through his 12 questions. And that enabled him to really gather information and organize for action in the specific areas he cared most about. So he appeared to be a man of very wide-ranging intellect, which of course he was, but he was more focused than most of us recognize. He might not have cared at all about mixed martial arts, or he might not have cared at all about chemistry. Maybe he was just a physicist, but what he did care about, he was very focused on. And so I think that's something Mike and my dear listeners, that each of us can learn from the idea of focusing down toward more important and fewer things to be really great at. So there's an additional thought, mailbag item number two. All right, on to Rule Breaker, mailbag item number three. Now, I probably get every year, or maybe every other year, a note from Dave Gack. Dave has made appearances on this podcast before. He's a wonderful storyteller with great perspectives on life. And Dave, thanks for writing in because I'm sharing your latest work. Let's do it. Rule Breaker mailbag item number three. Enjoyed the April mailbag this morning doing my four-mile run, listening at 1.75x speed. It takes my mind off the drudgery of the run. Two things caught my attention. Jeff Fisher, Dave Writes as an aside, I am a big fan. Mentioned that a ten thousand dollar investment in 1980 would be worth more than one point one million dollars at the end of 2022. I agree with his math and the power of compounding that he was rah-rahing. But currently, I am 70, so I was around in 1980. I was a captain in the army and had been in the army for three and a half years when 1980 began, Dave Geck writes, and I can tell you $10,000 was a lot of money back then. After taxes, Social Security, and Medicare payments, I would have had to have saved the residual of my previous year income. The thing I always cringe about, these types of comparisons, well, it's twofold. First, the start in this example is, Dave writes, in 1980 dollars, and the end is in 2022 dollars, if I put them in 2022 dollars, I would need about 35,000 dollars today to save to get to 1.1 $1. 1 million 2022 dollars in value. Hey, I'm the first one to agree that this is fantastic, but that is how much someone in 2022 would need to have saved to have 2022 value of 1.1 $1. 1 million dollars. Now, the second thing that rubs me a bit is 2022 me does not think 10,000 dollars or even is all that much, but in my case, 2022, Dave, Dave writes, doesn't think 2063, Dave, will need the money. And I think Jeff Fisher, who's joining me at this point in the podcast, welcome, Jeff. Thank you, David. I think Dave is, is reflecting that since he's 70 here in 2023, he's unlikely to make it to 110, although we're both cheering him on. Definitely. Definitely cheering him on, but to return to his note, but in my case, 2022 Dave doesn't think 2063 Dave will need the money. Likewise, I know that 1980 Dave would have thought of $10,000 as a huge amount, and I suspect most 27-year-olds today would see $35,000 as a huge amount. Now, I know Jeff would lose most of us if he tried to explain all this, so no criticism, just an observation. As for me, He concludes this part of his note, 2023, Dave, has more than three times the stated end point. So, I take pleasure in noting that although I did not have $30,000 to save in 1980 by saving and investing the last 43 years, although he says, "Okay, I only saved for 33 years since 1980 because I retired 10 years ago, I have been able to accumulate what that $30,000 in 1980 would have provided. So, Jeff, I may have made a mistake of getting too deep in the numbers. We're not. This is not a mathematical exercise you and I are about to embark upon. But any thoughts,
2: top of mind back, as we speak to 2023, Dave? Well, Dave is exactly right. I am celebrating the power of compounding and the power of the stock market, of course, as Dave well knows and has benefited from. And I oversimplified, I guess you could say, and it's totally accurate. $10,000 in 1980, which was $35,000 equivalent today, became more than $1 million, $1.1 $1. 1 million by 2022. So that's all. As Dave pointed out, that's true. He agrees with the math. Uh, but I love Dave's real life acrobatics that add so much more to this story because true, it. may not sound like that much right now, but it was a lot in 1980. So I could have used any number, of course. $100 in 1980 became $10,900 by 2022. So at least it was a much more agreeable sum to invest. And then it still tells the story. Wow, if I had just put $100 in 1980, which I guess by the math would be about $350 today, it would now be more than $10,000. And that that was just $100. So I, I'm just trying to convey to everybody that a little bit or a moderate amount, or even a large amount, if you think of it that way, can become much, much more in the stock market over time.
0: Very well said, Jeff. And my intent in having you back was not to have you issue a mea culpa. If anybody would need to do that, I would, because I put out compounding numbers just as much as you do. But first of all, I'm, I'm glad that you just put it back out there. All of these numbers are somewhat relative, and we all start with different amounts, and we all have different amounts of time. And a lot of us don't exactly know how much time we'll have, but at the heart of it is the benefit of compounding, uh, of daring to invest, and, uh, and reaping the rewards through patience. And I think good behavior, which partly explains longer health, the greater your
2: longevity, the greater your wealth. These things are tied directly together. Right, David. And one more thing I'll say about this, and this is in agreement with Dave on a topic he didn't mention, but I think he would agree, is I don't love the here's a static number if you invested this 42 years ago. Right. It would now, when, in reality, hopefully, we're all able to save something each year, if not each month, and let our savings grow in the stock market. And that, in that case, even if the market doesn't go anywhere for a long time, your savings have grown, and ultimately, hopefully, it all grows. So, yes, that's another critique I would have of this comment. Love it. One
0: other thing I'd like to mention before we go to a second point in his note, which I'd love for you to speak to, Jeff. I'd like to point out that while it's true that $10,000 today is like about a third of what it meant 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Here's something we never want to forget as well. A lot of stuff we get for free today mm. that cost stuff back then. For example, the easiest one that always comes to mind for me, Jeff, is long distance telephone calls, which I know Dave Geck would understand and you and I grew up with as well. It could be like a dollar a minute to call somebody, uh, especially internationally. And it certainly wasn't a video call. And it was not as good quality in many cases as well. So there are so many things today, we never want to forget this, pinch yourself, dear listener, that we're getting for free or at
2: vastly reduced prices that make things even better than we might think. That's true. And I was trying to think of other examples. And what came to mind is when you had to book a plane ticket, even in the 90s, you call a travel agent, you pay them a commission, etc. Now it's just straight through the... Glad you mentioned commission, because
0: as soon as you say that, Jeff, I think about the $50 or $150 you used to have to pay in commissions to a broker to trade a stock for you, and uh, you often had to have minimums, account minimums, or you couldn't buy fractional shares. The list goes on It does. Uh, of benefits that we take for granted today That
2: we could only have dreamed of thirty years ago. Now I'll have to take one on the other side. As coffee used to be twenty-five cents. Darn it! (laughs) All right. Uh, The other part of Dave's note
0: also speaks to uh, a different topic, Jeff, but one that you were around with me to discuss, and that was the benefits of a college degree or not. Mm -hmm. We were having this debate some in April, and Dave's got a story. You ready? He does. All right. Second point was on whether a degree is worth it. I would say a lot depends on what you want to do and what risk you want to take. Years ago, Dave writes, I had a job as manager of advanced engineering. I hired a person without a degree to fill one of my advanced engineering positions. The plant manager called me in and asked if I had lost my mind. He asked how I would risk my reputation of him failing and me hiring a non-degree person for my team. I told him, honestly, I probably wouldn't, except I had worked with him at a previous job for two years, and he had the exact skill set for what we needed. The manager said he would not stop me. His conscience was clear, but he would go after me if this guy failed. Pressure's on. Within a year, he was in love with this guy, (laughs) but would not advance his materials manager, who had no degree. When he left... I was a plant manager, and my boss asked me for my recommendation for another plant manager position. Well, when I recommended the materials manager, Dave's guy here, he unsurprisingly said, and I quote, but he has no degree. <laughs> Dave Get goes on to say, I told him that I could name a bunch of degrees people who were terrible managers. <laughs> also, that it made sense for someone coming out of school to their first or second jobs to to have a degree to show that they had something to show they had, I don't know, Dave writes, determination, a bit of smarts, et cetera, because you had no work history to go on. But in this case, we had seen him advance to the materials manager position and demonstrate the skills we felt were needed to be a plant manager. He said, okay, and gave him the job, and he excelled. But, Dave concludes, Jeff, Dave concludes, but he was lucky. He had me to advocate for him, and I had a history of preparing people for plant manager positions, so I was at least listened to for consideration, and he had a boss who was willing to hear what I said and take a chance. But it took him much longer to get there, and he did not have a chance to go higher. So, in conclusion, Dave Geck writes, I would say it is not impossible to succeed without a college degree, Jeff, but... You have to be good and lucky.
2: I love this story, and I love that Dave shared it. And hats off to Dave for giving this colleague the chance. Uh, and this was several years ago he wrote, so back then it was even more thought that you must have a degree. Of yeah, course. you're
0: right about that, Jeff.
2: And I absolutely love Dave's conclusion that you can succeed and you can advance without a degree, but it takes more luck. And things have to break your way more frequently. So I think going back to our conversation a few weeks ago, my belief is still the same. If you can get a degree, if you're that fortunate enough to go to school and get a a degree and, and you're at least somewhat enjoying the process or you're getting something from it, you don't feel like you're doing the wrong thing with your time, then it's worth it. It's an asset that you'll always have, whether or not you end up using it directly or not. Uh, Because I think, as Dave points out so well, without it, you just you need more things to break your way in many cases.
0: Really well said, Jeff. And I will add, I I think I'm underlining your point, but I will add that, um, yeah, having friends who can mentor you, who might recognize you. I mean, that was the critical dynamic here is that this guy without a degree knew Dave. And so often it's a reminder To look for the helpers out there Mm -hmm. and to ask ourselves, why might we be worth taking a risk on? And often it's because we've connected well enough with somebody else, maybe in a position of seniority, that they think good of us and are willing to take a little extra risk. So there's a human relationship dynamic uh, that we should all pay attention to as well.
2: Definitely. And if you read the reports of late on society in general, it sounds like it's something that is lacking for a lot of people. I think it's easy to forget how much your friends are there to help you, be there for you, support you. And we can go months. We we go months at my house not reaching out to friends. Time just goes by quickly and... But they're all there, and, and they will help you if you ask them. So it's important to remember
0: that. Love it. You know, Priya Parker, in her book, The Art of Gathering, I had the pleasure of having her on this podcast some years ago, she reminded me, she reminds all of us, that the purpose of a gathering, whether it's a cocktail party, a funeral, a corporate offsite, the purpose of a gathering is to help each other. That's kind of why we're gathered And those who keep that in mind and remember the purpose behind things usually excel. So, really appreciate you pointing that out. Jeff, will you hang with me for another mailbag point or two? Definitely. All right, then. On to mailbag item number four. And this one reflects back on Gotta Know the Lingo, volume four. Thank you, Sam Becker, for this note. On the Lingo podcast, Sam writes... My surprise winner was Tom King. Now, I'm going to pause it right there for two reasons. First of all, I didn't think that there was – was there a competition (laughs) to this one? Like, was there a – were there losers? I don't, Sounds I like hope it. not. So that's the first reason I want to pause. I, did, I didn't know there was a competition here, but the second reason is because Tom King is here. Tom, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. So me. have you been a surprise winner
3: in other contexts in the past? I'm generally not. Yeah, I don't generally win things. I get like a participation award, so I'll take that as a <laughs> Yes, the green
0: ribbon. Not the red, <laughs> not the blue, not even the white. The green ribbon. Okay, well, well said, Tom. But you were his surprise winner, so let me keep going. Sam writes, Tom is much less familiar to me than Bill Barker and Jason Moser, so he had the ability to surprise. Sam goes on, this is slightly more serious, as a bankruptcy and finance lawyer, I am familiar with most terms, but I thought Tom King's esoteric terms and descriptions were terrific and good for me to think about. I had, though, two nits with the discussions of debt ceiling and leverage. First, he says, I think it is important to tell people that the debt ceiling is an issue that arises when Congress has already authorized the expenditures, not new expenditures. So that is nit number one that Sam wants to pick. The second, on leverage, he writes, I think I would have emphasized that leverage can be a good thing if you can figure out how to pay it back. For example, an amortizing mortgage is different than a margin loan, so you can buy more stock. He concludes, Fool on. And so, gentlemen, I think we can expect that Sam Becker is a very Capital F Foolish bankruptcy and finance lawyer. Thank you for writing in, Sam. Okay, so let's talk briefly about both of these things. Actually, we're going to talk a lot more about the debt ceiling in just a few minutes. But let me start there. Would either of you like to weigh in with any additional thought about the debt ceiling? Or, as he points out, Congress has already authorized these expenditures. These are not new expenditures.
3: Um, I Yeah, I don't have anything to add. On that topic. I mean, I, I'm not sure how it works in the background, but after it's been approved by Congress, I suppose that money has to come from somewhere. And, it, and it, if, it, if there isn't enough from taxes, and it has to be borrowed.
0: Tom, a lot of us who are getting to know you may recognize you have a little bit of an accent to an American ear, and I know it's a South African accent. And I'm curious in your native country, South Africa. Is there this problem every decade or so with debt ceiling and the government just can't agree and it becomes a big tussle and a media sensation for a
3: month or so? Are you used to this? There hasn't been. I mean, we tend to have – it's just not something that's been in – it's not something that makes it into our news cycle. Corruption and power outages and things like that tend to be dominate the news back in South Africa. Yeah. Does
2: South Africa have $32 trillion or so of, of debt?
3: no (laughs) we'd be in big trouble if we did
2: i wonder if any country has been for 105 years raising the debt ceiling the u.s started the debt ceiling in 1917 uh and yeah exactly to the point of the spending's already all been approved this is i hate the phrase in a way but political theater to then debate how how do we pay for it um, but that's all I'll say for the moment. Thank you,
0: Jeff. And yeah, let's cut it off right there because we're about to welcome back Jason Moser as well and go a little bit deeper into debt ceilings. That's probably not the right metaphor. Anyway, let's go on to his point about leverage. On leverage, Sam writes, I think I would have emphasized leverage can be a good thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it increases your potential for reward, but it also increases your risk. So I'm um, speaking from ignorance here because I have never used borrowed money to buy shares um, so I I don't have a very innate understanding of, of how it works in a brokerage account um, but I, you know that that's the general point it increases your risk and if things go badly for you your equity can be wiped out pretty quickly
0: I have made very little use of margin over the course of my years although occasionally I have for example at one point we bought our new house before fully selling our previous present at that point house. And so, rather than do some bigger sale of stock, I was like, you know what? I think this house that we're sitting on still is going to sell. So, let's just keep this on margin for a little while. And it was a pretty low interest rate, and it worked very well. Jeff, there are other reasons investors might commonly be on margin, beyond just the, I'm tempted to buy too much of a stock that I think too much of,
2: right? Certainly. Where my head is at right now, though, first, is the good use of debt. Whereas a company... Borrows at a low rate and earns a higher return on that capital as it happens all the time. Or a house, as I think was being referred to, uh, if you get a good interest rate and buy a house at a reasonable price, of course that's could be great use of leverage over over the years. Of course, it can also bite you in the as in the great financial crisis when people overpaid for houses on um, borrowed money and then walked away. Uh, with investing, I do not advocate borrowing money to buy stock. Equity is too volatile. We know even great businesses can get cut in half in the drop of a hat. Even if they recover a year later completely, you have been wiped out in the meantime. If you're going to short sell stocks or use options, you do need to use the buying power of your account. You don't necessarily need to borrow money, however, but a short sale can quickly become margin if it rises against you and and you owe back more than the amount that the short originally paid you. So, yeah, I advise avoiding leverage in an equity account, Excellent uh, margin in an equity account. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Tom.
0: And thank you, Sam Becker, for writing in and giving us a little platform to reflect back on these points. Mailbag item number four. Okay, let's. you guys ready to talk a little bit more debt ceiling? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely, o- it's on
2: not- a hot topic.
0: On on the 0 to 10 proverbial scale, where 0 is, I wish I weren't in the studio right now, and 10 is, could I please have all the mics in the room and just start speaking into them in terms of your excitement? How excited, 0 to 10, I want you both to think about this independently. Do you have your number? I do. Okay, I'm going to count down from three, and you'll both say aloud your number simultaneously, so we can just hear where... Where the minds are i'm not going to answer this because we all know i'm a 10 otherwise why would we have this Mm. as the next mailbag item Mm. so are you both ready with your number this is how excited tom king and jeff fisher are to talk more about the debt ceiling here we go three two one seven nine all right that's that averages to eight and i say we bring in jason moser as well he's the one who got this whole topic started when he
2: introduced it on the gotta know the lingo episode earlier this month. Excellent. My caveat was it's a nine because Jason is entering the room. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Yep. On to Rule Breaker mailbag item number five. This one, again, reacting back to the Gotta Know the Lingo volume four podcast earlier this month. This is from Jum, our biggest fan, friends. So, let's get started. Jum writes, I hope everyone's doing well. You had fun with your birthday, David. My note to you this time, though, is on Gotta Know the Lingo Volume 4. First, I'm happy to report my score of 13. And that reminds me, friends and those who were with me know this, we encouraged listeners to score themselves. And it wasn't that a high or low score was necessarily good or bad. You were scoring yourself based on how much you learned. So, if you gave a zero, that meant you learned really nothing from us. And maybe that is a worse score than, than a bigger score. But if you had a higher score, like 12, which I think was the max, that means you really learned a lot from our Gotta Know the Lingo, Volume 4. Dear listener, if you did not get to hear that episode a few weeks ago, Google it, go back to it, re-listen to it, and score yourself and learn along with us. So, Jum, guys, is saying this. I'm happy to report my score of 13. I know, I know. The full score is 12. But let me explain. I feel I earned extra credit from researching the term. I gave Jason's debt ceiling, a score of three for the fact that it not only educates me about the term, but also sparks my curiosity to learn more about it. It also prompted my first time using chat GPT. I'm amazed by its ability to generate answers specific to my curiosity. I'm hoping we can revisit the term and clarify something. So here we go. I think this is a very foolish sentiment. And to me, to put a title on this before I read this next paragraph, I think we have a regular American. You know, an American like like you or me, dear listener, just the rest of us, I include myself in this group, wondering what exactly is going on with how our government handles its finances versus what I I'm trying to do in my own life. What's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, here we go. That's by the way, too long a title for anything. <laughs> here we go. As you know, John writes, I'm a nurse. Although I love business and investing, I have no background in the subject of economics. Before I listened to the episode, the more I heard about the debt ceiling debate in the news, the more frustrated I got. It's because it sounds like the focus of the debate is on the fact that we should raise the debt ceiling and not on working towards reducing our national debt. It frustrated me, John writes, because at an individual finance level, personal finance, if you will, taking on more debt, than we can handle, is almost always a bad thing. No bank is going to lend you more money, Jason Moser, and you're going to end up defaulting on your debt, and bankruptcy can ensue. So to an economic naive such as myself, John writes, I'm afraid that as a nation, we're sending out a message that it's okay to keep taking on more and more debt, and the solution is we can just keep raising the, in quotes, debt ceiling. I'm going to pause it right there. There's a little bit more to share with her viewpoint. But Jason, what comes to mind for you as you hear this first part of Jum's Note?
1: Uh, Well, first and foremost, I just love the engagement that Gotta Know the Lingo is creating here. I mean, this is really cool. we got to do more of these episodes. Um, I I, I like Jum's sentiment here. I think it's in line, honestly, with the way I'm thinking is, you know that old saying, you, you can't get yourself out of debt by taking out more debt, right? It's not solving the problem, right? It's really just kind of slapping a Band-Aid on it. And so, yeah, it does communicate, I think, a message to a lot of us that um, what we're doing maybe is okay for everyone just to do in their everyday personal and financial lives, and we know that's not the case. You can't just spend your way uh, into oblivion and keep on getting more debt. Uh, it, it, it's one of those things, you know, but I think part of this, the difference between family versus country. right? I mean, you look at it from the perspective of the individual or, or my family at home, for example. I have a family of four. We're talking about a country of 340-some-odd million people. And there are a lot of moving parts. We've got a wide variety of interests, priorities, and beliefs. It's a bigger entity. It's a credit-based economy. We are the, the world's reserve currency, the largest economy in the world. I mean, there's a lot that Not comes come wood. with that. Not yeah, wood. exactly. There's a lot that comes with that. And so, when, when you're dealing with a credit-based economy, it is something to keep in mind. Um, I do think it's important to note that, that the U.S. has carried a debt since our inception. Um, today, it's a very big number, $31 trillion. That sounds like a lot, and it is. Uh, now, it's worth noting, if you go all the way back to 1922, uh, in inflation-adjusted $2022 dollars, it was four hundred and eight billion dollars. So even all the way back to nineteen twenty twenty-two, it was I think what many would consider a very very large number, and it's just part of the nature that comes with a credit-based economy. And, and, and unfortunately, it does feel like we're communicating a message to individuals that uh, may not work out so well.
0: Well, I think part of what we can do through this podcast this week and. I think a lot of The Motley pools work is to remind us that you are different uh, than your government. The actions that you take, the choices that you make, um, don't always align one-to-one with what a larger entity might do. I think Jum, in her heart, understands that what makes sense for Jum may not make sense for the nation, and vice versa. I think, since most of us are Jums out there, we're trying to make the right decisions. We just, Jason, before you came on, we're talking about not using margin, as an example. There are reasons sometimes to make use of leverage, but it's complicated. And let me pick up her note right there, because she goes on to say, I know that it is a lot more complicated, (laughs) and I appreciate the distinctions made during that podcast, but could we please go back and discuss a little bit deeper the differences between debt at an individual level? and debt at a national level. Why is it okay and maybe necessary to take on more debt as a nation? Tom King, any thoughts here at this point?
3: Well, I think the important thing to remember is that as an individual, we can't create money. But the United States government and the European Union and Japan and a few other countries around the world, powerful economies are in the very unique position where they can create money. This is such an important point. And the rest of the world wants, particularly the mighty United States dollar. Um, So for example, at my household, if I don't have enough money to cover my expenses for the year, I have to go to the bank and say, Mr. Banker, please will you lend me some money? But if I am the United States government and I don't have enough money to cover my expenses for the year, I write down on a piece of paper, this is $100 and I give it to myself and I spend that. And it just so happens that everybody will accept that piece of paper (laughs) I created as legitimate currency. So that is the position the United States government is in. And I think the important thing I'm not an economist, so I think the absolute level of the debt ceiling, whether it's thirty one trillion or a hundred trillion, is not that important. I think the most important thing to focus on is inflation. Is the United States dollar maintaining its buying power, and I think that that is a far more important thing to be aware of than whether the debt ceiling is a hundred trillion or whatever, whatever arbitrary number you want
1: to put on it. Well, I think Tom makes a really good point here, too, is that this is not something that is. Gospel, right? I mean, economists all out there, I mean, they they, they disagree on this, but some economists feel that the, the debt limit is 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 really a crucial issue. Others feel like it's, it's immaterial and it shouldn't even exist. Um what the right answer is, I'm not necessarily sure. Like Tom, I'm not an economist. I did major in economics in college, David. Um but but, but I mean it it is something to remember that. I mean, there there is a political dynamic to this. And again, I get back to this really big family that we have. It's a big family, a lot of perspectives, a lot of priorities, and a lot of things that we want to get done. And I think that's where a lot of this comes from: is we're looking to figure out ways to allocate our money in the most effective ways possible. But we don't always agree, and then furthermore, that does constantly change as we have election cycles. I mean, every two years, right? I mean, at least. Uh, so, so it, it makes it a little bit more difficult. Back to that bigger, bigger family and a lot more moving parts. It just makes it a little bit more difficult. Really, have a problem to solve. I think
2: one of the best ways to tie this together then in comparing the government to the individual is to look at the amount of debt to the amount of GDP that the economy creates, just as in our households we look at the amount of assets we have to the amount of debt that we have. Yeah,
0: and when we research stocks, I'm often looking at the amount of debt the company has, the amount of cash it has in the bank,
2: and these things can be expressed as ratios. Exactly. So I think that's the one I agree with everything the table has said. And wait, and you just gave away that we're we're at a table. We're at a round table. Yes. Well, could you? Could, yeah, a round table is a slightly nobler phrasing. I mean,
0: I would like people to picture us in high, elevated circumstances. Jeff, for you simply to say that we're at a table really, I think, changes the <laughs> dynamic of this whole podcast for our listeners.
2: You're right. A lot of people are clicking out right now. <laughs> I'm out of here. And they're just at a table. <laughs> this beautiful round table at which we are so elegantly seated. (laughs) And the computer in front of me, the nice MacBook computer, shining and gleaming, tells me that in the year 2000, the debt to GDP of the U.S. was 56%. And now in the year 2022, it was 124%. So it it has doubled. So this is like saying you at your house have, you had uh, twice as many assets as you did debt in 2000. And now here we are in 2022 and you have... 30% or so more debt than you do have assets. So that's the one thing that concerns me about the U.S. And a lot of countries that that are letting their debt grow to a greater and greater portion than their GDP. And why would that concern me? For exactly the reason Tom mentioned. That can often lead to inflation decreasing the, the buying power of your currency.
0: Some really good thoughts, and I appreciate the multiple angles. And ultimately, we're speaking to Jum, we're speaking to everybody, really, who is trying to figure out how much they should care or not about this. Tom, earlier you said what really seems to be more important is inflation, not necessarily raising the debt ceiling, negotiating to have that uh, reach a certain number. And I would say that a lot more ink has been spilled over the last couple years. About inflation than the debt ceiling. I would also say more blood has been spilled, at least some of mine, in declining markets over the last couple of years because I think of that threat, very real, near and present, of inflation, which, gentlemen, seems to be coming down a little bit, at least the numbers suggest, and the markets
1: are back up a little bit in 2023. Feeling very good about that. Um, it, it does feel like we're starting to see some impacts of that of that interest rate policy uh, playing into that inflation number. And uh, I, I mean, I fully agree. I mean, you don't really think about it when it's not there. But then once inflation rears its ugly head, it really it really becomes unavoidable, and, and it just impacts it, it impacts you in every which way. And so, I mean, when you think about what we've been through over the last several years, I mean, especially over the last three years, we saw a lot of money pumped into the system for obvious reasons, right, to help get through what was obviously a very trying time. Um, But when you have... Too many dollars chasing too few goods and services, inflation is inevitable, and that is the definition of inflation. And so, I've said it before on Motley Fool Money. We're kind of dealing with that hangover of the last three years, and all of this money that really was was pumped into the system. I'm not saying that was right or wrong. I'm simply saying that's what was done. Uh, but but it really it really does speak to how impactful it can be that that inflation is really really troublesome to get past.
2: Definitely, Jason, and the and the great fear, of course, is that it becomes systemic. It it becomes part of it. Because if you expect inflation, if a company expects inflation to continue or at any level, they'll raise prices ahead of time to make themselves... A self-perpetuating funder, which, cycle, exactly, potentially, exactly. Jeff. So that's why you have to break it with these higher interest rates, which are likely going a bit higher still, but not that we want to prognosticate right now. But yeah, it's uh, looking a little better lately, but I don't think it's, it's not always easy to end inflation once it starts.
1: Well, and what can solve this? I mean, we, we hear a lot of conversation about economic growth, right? I mean, when you see economic growth outpacing, right, that, that national debt level, then you see that debt become a lower and lower percentage of the actual economy because the economy is growing. Uh, in stretches where the economy is not growing, then it becomes a little bit more of a persistent problem. And that's where you see these tools like interest rate policy and whatnot come into play. So, there are a lot of moving parts to it. It's, it's uh it's fascinating. I really enjoyed studying it in college. I enjoy discussing it now. Is I don't think there's any one right answer, um, and that's why you see so many disagreements on it. You know, Jum
0: kind of concludes your note by saying, I know we can't let our government default on its loan because that could destroy the credit of our nation, and we know that trust is everything. In fact, the ability of the U.S. government to be able to raise the debt ceiling and borrow more money is based largely on that, on, on trust. However, in reality, isn't raising the debt ceiling in a way reducing trust, saying we can't pay our debt. And I guess just to bring this one to a close, what you just said, Jason, is important. We all said it in in, in different ways. Um, If we're borrowing at an individual level or a corporate level, if we're borrowing and making use of those borrowings in a way that is generative, that well outdoes the detriment of borrowing in the first place, then that's a clear win. Um, I think it's hard to imagine governments consistently doing that. Um, they can certainly be generative, and I'm always reminded of Warren Buffett's great line, never bet against America. I think that's generally been. I hope, Tom, that you even are living in America right now from your beautiful native country of South Africa suggests that you're not betting against America.
3: No, no, not at all. No.
0: Are, are you betting, <laughs> betting for for America, of course, yeah.
3: Excellent.
0: And are you betting in
3: a kind of roll the dice, crazy man way, or with with quiet confidence? I'm not borrowing. I'm not. I'm not on on margin to betting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm investing my own money that I have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well said. So you know, I really trust is the coin of the realm. George Schultz famously said. Uh, I appreciate that. John closed her note there, and so I think a lot of us are just left kind of wondering how much can this be trusted. Uh, we always hear the big numbers, $31.7 trillion or whatever it rounds to uh, the national debt. But rarely do we hear it expressed as a ratio, which is more helpful. Jeff, you have pointed out that ratio is higher than in recent years. And yet, Jason, you pointed out that, hey, we had this thing called COVID. Can we even believe that we're all in a studio at a high, well-appointed table together, <laughs> in a studio together, face-to-face, where two years ago, we we literally couldn't do that? So- pinch ourselves in some ways that we got, got through and maybe it's not surprising that the national coffers have been a bit stretched. I want each of you to give a final sentence. It can be a sentence of reflection. It can be a sentence of advocacy. A sentence of whimsy, if you like. And I'll ask for a show of hands to see who's ready first to give his concluding sentence on
2: mailbag item number five. Jeff Fisher. This will be a long sentence. But Wait, <laughs> that itself was the sentence. No, no, that was the preamble. <laughs> He's calling, that was, okay, <laughs> calling okay. it. Okay, okay. So you haven't started the sentence <laughs> yet. Yes? No, I haven't. Okay, it'll start, it'll start now. A bright point to the debt is that more than one-third of it is owed to the government itself because different agencies within the government borrow from one another. So... More than 12 trillion is owed back to the government itself. So, about one third of it is that a sentence? What a horrible sentence.
0: That was a sentence. <laughs> and I think that that was a <laughs> sentence of reflection and insight. Thank, Thank you. you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Jason. I will say, you know, J- Jum said, I know. Wait, was that your uh, sentence? It's <laughs> not my sentence. I'm going to begin with something that Jum said. So, I don't think that counts anyway, but I'm going to play it okay. that way. Um, I know that Jum said, I know my note this time is a bit unoptimistic. LOL. Perhaps, but let's look at this at least a little bit glass half full and be thankful because you referred to the last three years, COVID opening these coffers with the financial stimulus. Let's be thankful that we live in a country where we have these tools at our disposal to be able to get through difficult times like these. Because when you look at the history, when you look at how far we go back where we've been running debt levels for this country, clearly there are solutions and ways to get past it. Uh, really, I think it's just worth remembering. uh we live in in a wonderful country that has just a a, a ton of tools at its disposal to be able to get through these stretches. Was that your sentence, or is it about (laughs) to start? It was a long (laughs) sentence, I know. I just really wanted to make sure to get that
0: point. Never bet against America. Tom King. Uh,
3: Yeah, I I guess I'd just say something whimsical. Um, You know, I know you watch the news and these things like Dead ceiling that makes all the headlines and people get very concerned about it, but I think maybe as... As an outsider, I can say that you should count your blessings to be Americans. And uh, and you have sure you have your problems, but for many countries, they're not as serious as many people face in other countries. So you're um, you're very blessed to be where you are.
0: Well, you called that whimsical, and maybe it was laced with whimsy, but I thought that was heartful, so full of heart. Thank you, Tom, for that reflection. And thank you each for this brief panel on the debt ceiling. Let's not do it again next week, although maybe we'll find another topic next week because it was really fun to be with you guys. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. On to Rule Breaker mailbag item number six. I foreshadowed this one a little bit at the beginning of the podcast. And if you're one of those people who reads the titles of the podcast before you click play, you may have noticed a pun because- Item number six enables me to welcome in my favorite hill. Chris, great to be with you. It is great to be here. Thank you. I really appreciate um, what you said yesterday on Motley Fool Money. Um, More important than words on a given day, uh, 26 years of being friends. That's what matters most of all to me. And as I think backwards from the future, which is often how I try to live my life, I think about we're all always playing the long game. So thinking back from the future, Chris, I have good news for you. We're friends for life. I've
4: seen it. Well, obviously, we recorded that episode set in the future, (laughs) as your listeners know. The year the market skyrocketed. Yes, yes. And so uh, it's great to have the benefit of foresight, hindsight. Maybe they're combined in some way. Um, but, yes, that you know, it, I was walking to the studio just now and was not sure what, exactly what we were going to be talking about. And um, the, the things that popped into my mind were not necessarily business-related per se. They were more along the lines of friendship and uh, moments we've shared as colleagues and friends. And I can share one now if you want. It's um, a time, I want to say more than 20 years ago, back when I was doing media and public relations for The Motley Fool, you and I were up in New York City uh, doing several rounds of interviews at different media publications and outlets. One of them was Bloomberg. And as happens every once in a great while, we had travel that everything worked out perfectly perfectly. To the point where we were 45 minutes early Early. to the Bloomberg building, and they basically politely said – you should come back in forty-five minutes because we're not ready for you. And so you, And they had like free food. Like that was a big thing about working in Bloomberg. Probably still is. They had
0: like all this breakfast stuff laid out. Yeah. We, we,
4: they could have invited us. They could have. It was there at the time, brand new building. It looked gorgeous. It was really at the forefront of the oh, free food for employees and all this sort of thing. And coffee <laughs> bars in the office. And it was just like and and we were almost like, you know, orphans uh, looking through the window and saying, well, we, we, okay. Well, we will literally walk the streets of New York City together, and we spent the next forty minutes or so just walking around New York City looking for a Starbucks. Um, we may or may not have been making jokes uh, at the expense of Michael Bloomberg himself, and um, good-naturedly, and good-naturedly, yes, with respect because he's built an incredible business. Michael Bloomberg. Has. My
0: recollection is that our joke ran something along these lines, Chris. That while In most Starbucks across the country and the world, you can order a tall, a grande, or a venti. But at the Starbucks right next to Bloomberg's offices, you could order an even
4: bigger size. And what was that one called? The bloomy. The bloomy. We basically created a scenario where Michael Bloomberg demanded (laughs) of Starbucks— Venti is not enough. —at this one location, a size just for (laughs) him— And that Bloomberg repeatedly throughout the day would just yell at his assistant, you know, get me so-and-so in accounting, get me this person from marketing, and get me another blooming
0: <laughs> And, you know, we, we've had experience in the past where we make jokes, but then they end up coming true. So there's a chance, Chris, that the former mayor is listening and that he will innovate uh, with a partnership at a nearby Starbucks and
4: that there may be a
0: bloomy, or maybe somebody's competing against Starbucks and realizes this is
4: the play. What is the tried and true playbook for businesses in the restaurant industry, particularly, um, and you can include Starbucks? It's the limited edition item, right? Why wouldn't they do a limited edition bloomy, even if it's just in New York City? You'd get I, who wouldn't go for that? I would go for that.
0: ka ching! So yes, and I remember that morning as well. I don't actually remember the interview in the Bloomberg offices, but- The
4: interview itself I, was fine, but not yeah, as memorable as walking around looking for coffee and Definitely not. The so, League.
0: I think that's been something that you and I have enjoyed together. Uh, and good news, it keeps going uh, until at least the year 2052, an opportunity whimsically to observe the business world together. Maybe I just say observe the world together and see the businesses doing their crazy good, sometimes bad things. Chris, you have done that for so many of us, me included, with an unerring combination of insight and good-naturedness for the better part of a quarter century for fools. And you've gotten a lot of thanks and a lot of plaudits, and I see out on Twitter people saying, uh, don't go, Chris Hill, and that's kind of how I still feel, but you've earned all of our respect, admiration, trust, and love. And I'm just really fired up that you took the time to walk over and come join me for mailbag item number six. You did say, as you walked over here, you're not sure what we're talking about. I did. Nor am I. <laughs> I just thought, Chris, come. Here's a mic.
4: I appreciate uh, those kind words. Um, longtime listeners will note, uh, probably with some measure of glee, uh, my business acumen, not always, not perfect, and sometimes very off. Uh, I remember in the early days of podcasting, uh, openly questioning this expensive acquisition Google made for this startup video company called YouTube. And just uh, like, I don't know, that's a, a billion dollars. $1.6 billion. That really seems like a lot of money. I'm not sure that's going to work out for them. Uh, there are plenty like that. But but it it is, you know, when people have asked me over the years, Okay, you're hosting a daily show. Like what's that like? You know, one of the things I've often said about it is it's never boring. It's one of the things I truly love about the business world is, rarely, if ever, is it boring. Um, you know, maybe there's a slow period right before earnings season starts. But being able to watch some of the great businesses of our time grow, uh, struggle, persevere. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating. It's, it's, it's one of those it's one of those things where for the most part when I read books, I don't read fiction. Uh, n- the nonfiction world is so fascinating to me and business is right there at the top of the list. Are you saying business is stranger than fiction? <laughs> is that what I'm hearing you say? Sometimes it is stranger than fiction. sometimes it is, but um, you know I, I was uh, talking uh, with our friend and colleague Bill Barker. And we were talking about something that happens, it's happening right now in the world of business. It happens every few years. And it is this fact where one idea becomes so hot that companies will latch onto it and stumble over themselves to talk about on their quarterly call, (laughs) oh, we're doing this thing too. Right now it's AI. Companies that aren't really involved in AR are going out of their way to say that they are. A few years ago it was blockchain. And I said, you know, the classic example is the Long Island iced tea company talking about blockchain, becoming a blockchain. And then when I was talking with Barker, I said, wait a minute, it just hit me. We came up with that at the Motley Fool more than 20 years ago with e meringue, (laughs) The April Fool's Day joke about the auto parts company that decided, it's like, oh, actually, we're an e-commerce company as well, selling meringues, not the pie, not the filling. (laughs) Just the meringue. We'll ship it anywhere in the continental United States within seven days. Long Island iced tea getting into blockchain. That they were stealing from the Motley Fool and e meringue
0: <laughs> I appreciate that. And Larry McCloskey, it's a ill-fated CEO. I think it's fair to say, Chris, you your knowledge when when you first and by the way, thank you. You took the time to let me know that you were going to be leaving us. And you said, David, I don't want you to hear this by email or anything else. I'd like you to hear it from me. So thank you. That's so respectful. I don't deserve that, but that was very kind. And when you told me that a few months ago, I said something like this to you, which I'm going to say again, Chris. You are a huge institutional memory here at The Motley Fool. You know things that I don't know that are amazing, hilarious and or, I hope, not really bad. There's no Theranos going on at The Fool that you know of, Chris, right? Not, I, I, not that I'm aware okay, of. Okay, good, good. Thank you. So, But you can neither confirm nor deny. Is that what you're saying on the record? On the advice of counsel. Okay, on the advice. Okay. Yeah. But you truly have, from bloomy to uh, 2023, you have seen it all, really, here at The Fool. So um, part of my being your friend for life is that you'll help me and all of us remember some of the things from the early and recent days. And Chris, whatever you go on to, I know you're going to succeed. I will be watching you. I'm a big fan. I'm so appreciative of all that you've done for so many of us. And you know, I would just say at different points with friends for life, we may walk in or out of each other's stories. I will continue to live forward with the assumption that you and I are going to have fun together in future whenever and however that happens.
4: The feeling is very mutual.
0: Chris, you have a future invite back to this podcast when, again, it'll make sense. It might be a day the market crashes or a year the market's... I'm not really sure, but I look forward to that day.
4: I look forward to it as well, particularly if there's a bloomy in the room. (laughs) Full on. Full on.
0: You know, as Chris stepped away from the studio, I shouted at him. Actually, I just slacked him, but I shouted at him this because I'd always wondered... Was this the case? Anybody who knows Chris's work at The Motley Fool knows his love of the news fairy. Visits from the news fairy right when he didn't think there'd be anything to talk about that day's episode of Motley Fool Money. The news fairy would show up and give him the gift of an interesting and good news story about business or finance. So I kind of shouted to him, I meant to ask, Chris, is there, is there actually a news fairy? And he replied back. Yes, for all those who believe. All right, and on to Rule Breaker mailbag item number seven. Eldon Fred Hill was born in 1921 to his parents, Harold and Anna. He was born in Loyal, Wisconsin. Gotta love it. Loyal, Wisconsin, where he spent most of his life before moving to the state of Washington in his later years. Eldon grew up during the Great Depression, the community- Played an important role in his upbringing. As a child, he raised rabbits, chickens, and calves for sale. He used discarded lettuce leaves as feed and raked leaves as bedding during their winter. He also grew potatoes, which he sold at the feed mill, the food distributor where he worked on weekends in high school and college. In addition to odd jobs, he recycled copper wire and aluminum plates from the nearby garbage dump for extra cash. Eldon also enjoyed playing gin rummy and poker at the town's watering holes, which provided, his obituary said this past week, a consistent source of income. Despite not approving of Eldon's money-making activities, his mother, Anna, didn't have the heart to forbid him from pursuing them during the difficult times. She recognized the importance of practical skills and insisted that Eldon learn to type, saving up for a year to buy him a typewriter which he quickly mastered. Eldon's typing skills proved useful when he was commissioned stateside and when he later pursued medical studies. Eldon had a lifelong habit of saving money and making cash purchases, always looking for a good value and avoiding unnecessary expenses. He made the mistake of buying his first new car on credit, which he promptly crashed the next day. This experience taught him the importance of never financing a car again. After completing his undergraduate studies in pharmacy training, Eldon Hill relocated to Madison, Wisconsin, where he continued to raise rabbits and play poker to earn an income while pursuing his medical degree. During his undergraduate years, he also worked in the dining room and maintained a high academic performance following his service in the Navy. During the war years, Eldon used his typing skills to assist in recruiting before enrolling in medical school. He completed his internship at Miller Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he met his future wife, Josephine, or Joey. The couple tied the knot in 1947 in St. Paul, Minnesota. In 1948, Eldon and Joey spent a year in Janesville, Wisconsin, where their first child was born. They then settled in Spring Valley, Wisconsin, where Eldon established his general practice. He continued to practice as an OBGYN, until his retirement at 65 years of age. Eldon and Joey would go on to have seven kids, and I am sorry to note from his obituary that his family eventually separated, did end in divorce. Eldon embarked on a new life, it says here in the Marshfield News-Herald, leading a somewhat nomadic existence. Eldon lived a simple and thrifty life with a passion for stock investments and options trading. He relied on The Motley Fool for advice, and kept 10-15% to 15% of his net assets in cash, while investing the remaining 80% in long-term stocks. This allowed him to weather market corrections and invest in, quotes, value equities. He also allocated approximately 3-5% to 5% of his assets to options trading, which covered his annual expenses. Eldon was proud that most of his multi-million dollar estate was earned during his retirement years rather than his medical career. In 2014, Eldon decided to give back to the community that raised him in Loyal, Wisconsin by donating the majority of his estate to endowments, including a financial literacy endowment supporting a full-time teacher to provide financial literacy education to students in grades K-12 through in Loyal, with evening classes available for adults as well. Eldon's generosity, it concludes, will continue to impact the community for years to come. Eldon Fred Hill, a retired obstetrician, gynecologist, and I'll add here, a foolish investor, passed away peacefully on April 26th 2023, at the age of 102. So there you have it. Dickens wrote a tale of two cities. We're lower budget than Dickens. This podcast won't likely stand up to the test of time quite as winningly. So rather than being able to bring you two cities, I got to bring you, and close with, two hills. One of them I'm not sure I ever met. Eldon Hill may have rubbed shoulders with a Gardner brother or two, maybe at a Minneapolis book signing in the 90s, or at a Motley Fool member event in the teens, or maybe not at all. I don't know, but it was my pleasure to share with you the obituary from the Marshfield, Wisconsin News Herald about a man who raked leaves so that he could provide bedding to the rabbits and chickens he raised, crashed his first car a day after he'd financed it, served our nation in the Navy during World War II, parlayed typing skills into a medical degree, helped his fellow men, well, actually women, for decades as an OBGYN, and all the way through kept saving and investing, saving and investing, finding the fool, not sure how, and allocating 80% of his portfolio to, in the words of the obituary, in quotes, value equities. And at the end of it all, made more money that way than as a professional lived into the triple digits and gave most or all of it away in the form of endowments to leave the campfire better than he found it. A remarkable hill. The other hill I know well. If you're a fellow fool of any vintage, you do too. Chris Hill has given of himself himself and his many gifts, from a quick wit to relentless good nature, such a foolish sensibility as well, a generous spirit that had him bringing in chocolate-covered fruits to the office for fellow employees the day before he rode off into the sunset. This era's sunset, the full sunset, not Chris's sunset, no siree, Chris Hill, in whatever time he likes, in whatever way, will go on to continue to leave whichever campfire is lucky enough to lure him much better Then he found it, and as my presentiments suggested, I know this won't be the last time I or we get to enjoy Chris, and I hope he lives to one hundred and two. One hundred and two. Hmm. That's a good number. The hundred part makes me think of the one hundred emoji. One hundred as in excellent. Top drawer, one hundred. That's the one hundred part, and then the two. Well, that's the two hills, both of whom, by my emoji, accounting, counting 100. 100 and two hills.
1: As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.